welcome from me too to church this afternoon. It's great to have you with us. Um, I wonder if you've ever felt pressure to not talk about what you believe. Ever felt under pressure to not speak about your faith in a public way. I think in uh, British culture, we're quite nervous, aren't we, about anyone who has strong convictions about religion or politics. And we don't like going there in conversations. And there can be this kind of feeling that these conversations, these kinds of things, aren't welcomed for us to, to speak about. I don't think it's just true of Christians. I think it's true for all kinds of faiths, uh, Jews, Muslims, Sikhs, atheists. But it does seem to be particularly true for Christians in our culture, which is a bit strange given our Christian heritage. But if you're a Christian, however long you've been a Christian for, if it's a few days, a few months, a few years, or a few decades you've probably felt at some point that kind of pressure to not speak about what you believe, to not speak about your faith. And that pressure can be um, quite obvious. There's an increasing number of cases that are coming to to the news of Christians who are being disciplined, um, in some cases even fired from their jobs for speaking about their faith, whether that's um, wearing a cross as a public symbol of what they believe, or whether it's Uh, speaking to a person who's asked them a question about their faith or praying with someone who's asked for prayer. More and more cases coming up of Christians who are being disciplined or even fired from their jobs for being Christians and speaking publicly about Jesus. When I started at my job a few years ago, um, nearly 10 years ago actually, wow, scary thought, uh, there was a prayer group and we met for prayer in the workplace. A few Christians and I joined the company. I thought, great, we're going to pray together every week. And I said to the guys, well, the reason I found out about it was through someone I knew at the company. I said to them, well, there might be Christians that don't know about this group. Why don't we advertise it and tell people we exist? So that if there are any other Christians in the workplace, they can join us. And I was told, well, there's someone in the management who isn't really happy about us meeting. He doesn't mind us getting on with it as long as we don't make too much noise about it. As long as we don't advertise. As long as we don't go too public. Maybe... You're in a workplace and you know just what I mean. You know that if you spoke out about your faith, you would suffer. There would be opposition. People wouldn't be happy about it. It can be obvious in that kind of way. But the pressure can also be quite subtle. It could be just the funny look when you mention that you go to church in a conversation. It could be the awkward silence when you mention the name of Jesus to a friend. Or the cold shoulder that follows for a few days or weeks afterwards. Um, I play football on a Monday night with a bunch of guys and um, recently I met, there was a new person that joined and I was chatting to him and we found out that we had a friend in common, which is one of the nice things about living in a town that's the size of Chippenham, that happens occasionally. Um, And he asked, how do I know this person? I said, oh, we go to the same church. And there was a silence that was just long enough to communicate, that's a bit weird, and then he changed the conversation. (laughs) A really tiny thing, but they add up and they make you feel like I can't, I can't speak. It's safer not to speak. It's more comfortable not to speak and tell people who I am and, and what I believe. Probably the, the clearest example I can remember of this happening to me was uh, when I lived in London. And I lived there um, after I graduated from university, the year after I graduated. I just got engaged a couple of weeks before I moved. And I was doing a, a year out after finishing university, um, a sort of discipleship year, working with Christian students. And I was determined, moving to London, I don't want to get caught or trapped in a Christian bubble. I want to spend time with non-Christian friends. And I had a friend at university who wasn't a Christian who I played football with. And so I joined his football team. 
There's a bit of a football theme here, isn't there? Um, anyway, it was the start of the season, and they were getting together in the pub for, for a drink. So they invited me along. I thought, great, I'll go along, get to know them. So I turned up at this pub in central London, and I knew uh, perhaps one or two of the people there, and the rest I didn't know, a group of about 10, 12 people. And they were all uh, fairly, it became clear, fairly committed atheists, all from South London, and with their skinny jeans, their beards, and they all study things like philosophy and sociology and psychology, and we were chatting away, I was getting to know them. And I would had in my mind, my friend, um, who I'd got to know at university, doesn't know yet I'm engaged, so I'll tell him at this evening. And uh, as I was sitting there waiting for the right opportunity, the conversation turned to a, a mutual friend of theirs that they knew, uh, who was a Christian. And he had got married quite young, and he had lost contact with that group. And the way they were speaking of him was very negative and, and critical about not just the way he'd handled that situation, but about what he believed, and about his lifestyle, and about the way he'd sort of handled himself. And I was sitting there, and my heart was sinking. I was thinking, I've come here to tell my friend this, this news, and, uh, and this, the conversation's gone this way. I, I, the longer I leave it, the harder it's going to get. But if I say something, I'm going to be ostracized. And I felt this, this pressure... It's just going to be more comfortable, Andy, if you don't share what you're going to share. Don't say you're a Christian. And just, just sit back and keep quiet. I felt this pressure to keep quiet. Maybe you felt the same thing. Um, if you like stories ending, I'll tell you the end of the story later in the, in the message, just to keep you, keep you alert. Um, maybe you're feeling the same thing. You're feeling that pressure to not speak out, to not share who you are, to not share your belief in Jesus. Living as a Christian in the world, in a public way, in a way that people can see, is hard. So the question is, how can we find the kind of boldness and courage that we need to to keep going and to keep speaking out and to keep being public about our faith? And Daniel 6, the chapter we're looking at this afternoon, I think is a great chapter for us to be looking at to answer that question, how can we find that kind of boldness that we need to, to live in this way? It's kind of a case study for living as a follower of the Lord in a hostile world. So if you've got a Bible, please turn to Daniel 6. It's on page 743 in these uh, black Bibles. And it's a very familiar story, to probably to most of us. Um, it's the story of Daniel in the lion's den. It's probably the, one of the most common stories in, in children's storybooks. Um, I was going to bring along one of mine this afternoon and show you, but I'm sure you can imagine from experience, especially if you've got kids that are fairly recent, uh, that it's one of the most common uh, stories. And there are good reasons for that, as we'll we'll come across. Um, But I think, as with all these stories that are familiar, when we look at the stories again with fresh eyes and read the actual text, we can often find surprises. And we can certainly find things that are helpful and relevant. And I really believe that's true for this, this passage today. So... Last week, if you were here, you'll have heard uh, Mike preaching from Daniel 5. And just to give a bit of context and background, he was speaking about uh, the end of the Babylonian Empire that we've been learning about. And the last king of Babylon was a guy called Belshazzar. Well, he was the last ruler of the city of Babylon, at least. And we heard about his pride and what happened when uh, God humbled him. And if you have a look at the end of chapter 5, down at verse 30 bottom of page 743, we read, that very night, Belshazzar the Chaldean king was killed, and Darius the Mede received the kingdom, being about 62 years old. 
So that's the context we're working with. It's a change of kingdoms. There's a new empire in town. It's the Medo-Persian Empire. And there's a new king, a king called Darius. So the question is, what's going to happen to our hero, Daniel? He's had quite a high position in the previous kingdom. He's a, he's a wise man. He's been called on um, in this incident that's just happened to interpret this, this vision. So what's going to happen to him in this new kingdom? Let's have a look. Chapter 6 and verse 1. It pleased Darius to set over the kingdom 120 satraps to be throughout the whole kingdom, and over them three high officials, of whom Daniel was one, to whom these satraps should give account, so that the king might suffer no loss. Then this Daniel became distinguished above all the other high officials and satraps, because an excellent spirit was in him. And the king planned to set him over the whole kingdom. So Daniel is quickly identified as someone with real skills, leadership skills and administrative skills. And he's appointed to a really high place in the kingdom. He's one of three who are ruling, 120, who are ruling the whole thing. So he's really high up um, in this this new king's um, administration. And he does so well and he works with such an excellent spirit, the king wants to promote him even to being the, the head in command over all of his staff. And bear in mind, this empire is the, the biggest and most powerful empire in the, the known world at that time. It's like um, the American White House, let's say, the, the position of chief of staff, one of the most influential positions in, in the world. And Daniel is being, um, being planned to be offered this, this position. Just uh, notice at this point that Daniel is thriving and prospering and being blessed in a secular job. He's not a full-time prophet, there are others who were full-time prophets at that time and God used them, but that's not Daniel. He had an employer and his employer was the Persian government and he worked in the Persian government and God blessed him. And he uses his gifts to, to benefit his employer and he's given this position of influence and it's really significant. But as so often happens, success breeds resentment. So let's have a look at what happens next, verses four and five. Then the high officials... And satraps, the, the colleagues, the peers that work with Daniel, sought to find a ground for complaints against Daniel with regard to the kingdom. But they could find no ground for complaints or any faults because he was faithful and no error or fault was found in him. Then these men said, we shall not find any ground for complaint against this Daniel unless we find it in connection with the law of his God. It's an impressive statement, isn't it, about Daniel's work life. They're jealous, they're resentful, they think the king's going to promote him above us, and so they try and find something wrong with him, they try and find complaint with him and fault with him, but they can't do it. They search his records, they search his emails, they search his internet usage, and they can't find anything he's done wrong. There's no ground for fault. It's an impressive statement, isn't it? What an amazing witness for Daniel to be in that society and to live and work in such a way that people who want to find fault with him can't do it. Unless it's in connection with his God. So they know he's a follower of God. They know he's devoted to his God. That's clear from the way that he's conducted himself, from how he's spoken, from his priorities. He's made that really clear to them. And they know that's the way to catch Daniel out. That's how we're going to get him, if we're going to get him at all. Now, I think this is a real encouragement for um, Christians in the secular workplace. Just to, to pause for a moment on that, that point. 
See, God cares about what happens Monday to Friday. He doesn't just care about what we do on a Sunday afternoon here. He cares about what we do in our work. He cares about that, and he's called us to it. And he wants us to live with excellence. He wants us to work and do our best for our employer. He wants us to bless the people we work with. He wants us to give of our best to benefit who we're working with for his glory. And he wants us to work as though we're doing it for him. And not only that, he wants us to work with excellence, but he wants us to work with integrity as well. He wants us to work in such a way that if someone tried to find fault with what we did in the workplace, they couldn't do it. If someone tried to find a way to to find a complaint against us, they couldn't do it because we're so committed to our work and we're so devoted to God that we're working for that people look at us and say, wow, I wish we had a company full of people like him or her. That would be amazing. It's a real encouragement. God sees what we do. He cares about what we do. He's called us to what we do. And he wants us to do it publicly as Christians. He wants us to do it in such a way that people know we are followers of Jesus through the way we conduct ourselves, through how we speak, through what we say we did at the weekend, through who we say our friends are, through what we don't do as well. He wants us to live in such a way that people know we're followers of Jesus because that's how his kingdom grows. That's God's plan. God's kingdom does grow through the full-time prophets. It does grow through the people who do the street preaching. It does grow through those means, but the main way God's kingdom grows is through ordinary Christians doing the ordinary work that God's called them to do, Monday to Friday, in such a way that people look at them and say, I want to know what's different. I want to know what they've got. And they've heard, I think they're a follower of Jesus. I think they go to church. I need to find out more. That's the way God's kingdom grows, through an attractive community who are embedded in the world and who live in a way that's distinctive and attractive. So God cares about what happens midweek. And if you're living like that, as Daniel did, with integrity, with excellence, and with a public witness, almost certainly you're likely to face opposition, as Daniel did. And that opposition that you will face in your workplace is different for everyone. The kind of pressures you'll feel to not speak out and to keep quiet are different, but we'll all face them. And for Daniel, that opposition, that pressure came through the law, came through a new law that was passed. Let's have a look at verse 6, at how his opponents try to stop him. They come up with a plan. Verse 6. Then these high officials and satraps came by agreement to the king and said to him, O King Darius, live forever. Start with the flattery. All the high officials of the kingdom, the prefects and the satraps, the counsellors and the governors, are agreed that the king should establish an ordinance and enforce an injunction that whoever makes petition to any god or man for 30 days, except to you, O king, shall be cast into the den of lions. Now, O king, establish the injunction and sign the document so that it cannot be changed according to the law of the Medes and Persians, which cannot be revoked. Therefore, King Darius signed the document and injunction. So they found a way. They're using the law of the land as a weapon to try and weed out Daniel, to try and get him, to try and knock him off his perch. And they use flattery. They go to the king and say, oh, king, live forever. We think it would be a great idea if you did this. If you made a law for 30 days, no one can pray to any god or man except you. And the king, he's fairly new to the job. And it's a 
it's in the, the culture of the day of the, of the kingdom was that lots of different gods are perfectly acceptable. You can worship whatever god you want. So there's no problem normally with, with Christians worshiping their own god. Um, but it's very important that the king is one of those gods that you worship. The king is appointed by the gods and, and you've got to worship the king as one of your gods. And that was what got Daniel and his friends into trouble um, three chapters ago. Shadrach, Meshach and Abednego refused to bow and worship the king. And so Darius is thinking, this would be great. I'm new to the king, kingdom. If we could have 30 days where no one prays to their own gods and only prays to me, that would be really helpful. Consolidate my power. Get me in, in position. Get my feet into the table. Everyone knows I'm the boss. Just for 30 days. Great idea. So he signs up to it. And suddenly, as his pen goes to the paper, there's a huge new pressure that's bearing down on Daniel. The rule of the law has said you can't do your faith in the way that you do it. You can't be a public believer in God. And the threat is death. See, Daniel normally, his normal practice is to pray in such a way that people can see him. He's got an upper room and he's got a window that he opens towards Jerusalem where his ancestors are from, where he was taken from all those years ago. And he, he prays by that window in such a way that people can see him. It's a public thing to do. He's not praying on the streets, but he's not hiding away. He's not being in a, in a closet on his own where no one can see him. And what's he going to think? He's tempted. He's thinking, well, I could keep going with what I've done. Or I could just go somewhere else and shut the door and pray where no one can see me. I'm sure he's having inner wranglings in just the same way as his friends did uh, three chapters ago when they were told to bow down to that statue of Nebuchadnezzar. I'm sure he had similar conversations perhaps with his, his friends and his family. You've got this position of influence. You've got all this power that you can use for good. Why waste it just by praying in a way that people can see you? Why, why waste it? Just... Just do the right thing. Just go somewhere else and pray somewhere else and it'll be okay. You're still praying to God. He still hears your prayers. Just the same. So how's he going to respond? Let's have a look. Verse 10. When Daniel knew that the document had been signed, he went to his house where he had windows in his upper chamber open towards Jerusalem. He got down on his knees three times a day and prayed and gave thanks before his God as he had done previously. Daniel sees the pressure, he sees the threat, he sees if I keep going, I could, be, I could be killed, thrown to the lions. He weighs it up, he takes a deep breath, and he steps out. And he keeps doing what he's done. He keeps living and praying as a follower of God publicly. And he's not on the streets, he's not preaching, he's not going out and saying, this is why you should be able to pray to your own God and not pray to the king. He's just being himself, a devoted follower of God. He's saying, my relationship with God means so much to me, not even a den of lions can keep me from him. Not even a den of lions can keep me from my God. He's so committed, he's saying, I'm not going to stop doing what I do just because a rule has been made. He gets down on his knees and he prays. And, and then from that moment on, it all plays out. Verse 11 Then these men came by agreement and found Daniel making petition and plea before his God. So they've they've met by his door. So they obviously know he's going to pray there. They've seen it happen. And they've met there. They've they've called a meeting. They've got their evidence. And then verse 12, they came near and said before the king, concerning the injunction, O king, 
Did you not sign an injunction that anyone who makes petition to any god or man within 30 days, except to you, O king, shall be cast into the den of lions? The king answered and said, The thing stands fast, according to the law of the Medes and Persians, which cannot be revoked. Then they answered and said before the king, Daniel, who is one of the exiles from Judah, pays no attention to you, O king, or the injunction you have signed, but makes his petition three times a day. So they're, they're calling attention to him. He's an exile from Judah. That happened 60 years ago. Why are they bringing that up? It's to make the point. He's a foreigner. He's a threat. He doesn't obey your law, O king. And the king, when he heard these words, was much distressed, and he set his mind to deliver Daniel, and he labored till the sun went down to rescue him. Then these men came by agreement to the king and said to the king, No, O king, that it is a law of the Medes and Persians that no injunction or ordinance that the king establishes can be changed. You can kind of feel the tension, can't you? The king knows he's been tricked. He knows Daniel's is one of his top wise men. He doesn't want to get rid of him. And suddenly he sees through it. He sees, I've been tricked. And he doesn't want to lose Daniel, so he labors. And he gets his officials around, he gets the law books out, and he's working away, trying to find a way to get around this situation and save his man. He's working away, and then the, then the opponents come in. And they stand there with their arms folded and say, you do know, don't you? The law can't be changed. He's saying, yes, I know. More books. The sun's going down in the sky, and the tension ratches up. And finally, the sun goes down. And no answer's been found. There's no last-minute deliverance. It's not like in the films. It looks like it's curtains. Verse 16. Then the king commanded, and Daniel was brought and cast into the den of lions. The king declared to Daniel, May your God, whom you serve continually, deliver you. And a stone was brought and laid on the mouth of the den, and the king sealed it with his own signet and with the signet of his lords, that nothing might be changed concerning Daniel. Then the king went to his palace and spent the night fasting. No diversions were brought to him, and sleep fled from him. It looks like curtains, doesn't it? Daniel stood up for his, his faith. He's, he's maintained his public witness. His opponents have got him. He's trapped. The king can't help it. And he's thrown into the den of lions. And just to seal his fate, the king seals the, the stone with his ring to say this can't be changed. No one can come and release him now. There's no more going back. There's no more law book checking. Decision's done. It's over. Finished. And he goes back to his room and he's racked with guilt. He's thinking, why didn't I see this coming? Why was I so foolish? Why did I set that law into place? Why didn't I see those guys might have had wrong motives for, for, for encouraging me to, to make that law? He can't sleep all night. And the next morning he wakes up. Verse 19, at the break of day, the first thing he does, he arises and goes in haste to the den of lions. As he came near to the den where Daniel was, he cried out, in a tone of anguish, the king declared to Daniel, O oh Daniel, servant of the living God, has your God, whom you serve continually, been able to deliver you from the lions? Then Daniel said to the king, O oh king, live forever. My God sent his angel and shut the lions' mouths, and they have not harmed me, because I was found blameless before him. And also before you, O oh king, I have done no harm. It's amazing. It's an amazing, incredible miracle. Daniel is probably an 80-year-old man by this stage. He's thrown into the den of lions. For a start, how did he survive the fall? 
with his, his, the, the, the brittleness of his bones of that age. But the lions were, were fierce lions. They were captured from the wild, kept in captivity for the purpose of executing people. This kind of thing did not happen, that people were still there the next day. Daniel says, an angel came and closed the mouths of the lions, and I've not been touched. It's an incredible miracle. But there's a subplot going on as well to what happens here. Because there's not just the, the contest between Daniel and the lions that has a surprising outcome. There's someone behind Daniel and there's someone behind the lions. So it's Daniel's God and it's the opponents of Daniel's God, the enemies of Daniel's God, his, his colleagues and friends who have made this plot. And it's not just Daniel that's been saved, it's God who's demonstrated himself to be more powerful than his opponents. Their attempt to take him off his perch, to knock him down, has failed. They've done their best. They've created this law. They've caught him. He's in the lion's den. As far as they're concerned, job done. But it's foiled. At the last attempt, it's foiled. God defeats their plan. And he shows himself conclusively to be more powerful. God is more powerful than his enemies. And just to emphasize that point, let's see what happens next. Verse 24. And the king commanded, and those men who had maliciously accused Daniel were brought and cast into the den of lions, they, their children, and their wives. And before they reached the bottom of the den, the lions overpowered them and broke all their bones in pieces. Then King Darius wrote to all the peoples, nations, and languages that dwell in all the earth, peace be multiplied to you. I make a decree that in all my royal dominion, people are to tremble and fear before the God of Daniel. For he is the living God, enduring forever. His kingdom shall never be destroyed, and his dominion shall be to the end. He delivers and rescues. He works signs and wonders in heaven and on earth. And he has saved Daniel from the power of the lions. So this Daniel prospered during the reign of Darius and the reign of Cyrus the Persian. Just to emphasize, God's more powerful than his enemies, the chapter ends in total defeat of those who have opposed him. Not only the enemies, but their wives and children are thrown into the den, and this is the bit that doesn't normally get into the children's storybooks. And it's, it's pretty gruesome, it's pretty brutal, but that's what happened in those days. It was a brutal empire. They and their families were thrown in, and before they touched the ground, the lions had devoured them. Wow. It's pretty, pretty brutal, isn't it? And pretty final. And it makes the point. At the start of the chapter... We've got God trying to be silenced by his enemies. And at the end of the chapter, we've got his enemies totally defeated. And we've got God being praised. We've got a decree going out to all the, the earth, all the known world, saying the God of Daniel needs to be feared. He needs to be respected. He's lifted up on a pedestal. Can you see what's going on? It's an amazing story, isn't it? It's an amazing story. It's, it's got everything. It's got political intrigue. It's got faith. It's got courage, it's got threat, it's got danger, it's got tension, and it's, it's got deliverance, and it's got a victory for the good. So you can see how it gets in all the children's storybooks. But how does it help us? How does it help us in our own challenges? How does it help us on Monday when we're facing that conversation or facing that person that we know is going to give us a hard time for being a Christian? How does it help us in those challenges? Well, it's not saying, trust God and he'll keep you safe. It's not saying, trust God and no harm will happen to you. Every year, 100,000 Christians die for their faith. 
it's not saying trust God and he'll keep you safe. It's saying something bigger than that. It's saying something a bit less simple than that, but something far more uh, encouraging. I think the story helps us in two ways. It helps us understand two things. Firstly, the, the story of Daniel 6 helps us understand who the real enemy is. It helps us understand who the real enemy is. So in the story, the enemy of Daniel is not the king. And that's a bit different from the other chapters. In chapters uh, 2, 3, 4, 5, the king is the one who's setting themselves up against God, to oppose God. That's not the case here. In Daniel 6, the king is pretty powerless. He's a bit impotent, really. He's the one who gets tricked into making this law. And then he wants to save Daniel. He tries hard to do it, but he can't. And he's the one who's on his bed having a sleepless night, racked with guilt. So the king's not the one who's opposed to God here. The real enemy in Daniel 6 is his colleagues, the satraps and the rulers who are jealous of his success. They're the ones who are trying to play God. They're the ones who are trying to get rid of him, to try to try maneuver the situation to their own advantage, to push themselves forward. They're, they're the ones that are motivated by jealousy and they're hungry for their own status. And they just, they're, they're proud. They just want to push themselves forwards. That's the real enemy in Daniel 6. And they kind of work behind the scenes, trying to achieve their own ends, to bring Daniel down. So who's our real enemy? Who's our real enemy when we're opposed, and when we feel that pressure? Well, we've been learning about it in our life groups, haven't we, in the One Verse series. Ephesians chapter 6. I won't try and make you recite it now. Our battle is not against flesh and blood. It's against rulers, authorities, I won't try and say it now in case I get it wrong, but it's, our battle is not against people. Our battle is against the, the authorities and cosmic powers in the heavenly realms. Our battle is against the devil. He's our real enemy. And he's got the same motivation as those people did in Daniel 6. He's motivated by pride, by a hunger for his own position. He's motivated by jealousy. He's motivated by a desire to push himself forward. And that's why he fell, because he was jealous and resentful of God being the ruler of his, king, his kingdom. And the devil is the one who works behind the scenes trying to take down Christians. The devil is the one who tries to silence God's people because he knows that if God's people are not silent, that's how God's kingdom grows. And that's exactly what he doesn't want. That's exactly what he doesn't want. In fact, the Bible describes, in the New Testament of the Bible, in a letter called 1 Peter the devil is described as like a roaring lion, seeking who he may devour, prowling around behind the scenes, trying to stop us and quieten us and keep us from speaking out about Jesus. And he has many different tactics. In Daniel, we saw that he used the law. In, in our country, often it's very subtle. It's social pressure, like we saw. It's that cold shoulder. It's that awkward silence. It's that feeling that you just can't say what you really want to say. You, just, you can't be that. You can't believe that. And there's the, there's the social pressure that's more subtle. And it, there's, a, there's, there's a, a pressure of government. There's a pressure of, of law as well in this country. Again, that can be quite subtle, where we're increasingly seeing um, the way that the law is going, in particular things like uh, hate speech legislation, where it's looking like Christians are going to, in the future, not be able to say certain things in public for fear of offending what society says is okay to say and what is not. Certain areas where the teachings of Jesus just aren't compatible with what our, our rulers think is okay. 
And again, that can be quite subtle. And, but in different cultures, he moves on another step. He can go for all-out assaults. We see in places, certainly in the Middle East at the moment, and uh, places, things like um, Islamic states, where the devil is all out trying to just wipe out Christians. He's got all kinds of different tactics on all kinds of different levels. And you may be feeling this at some point in your life at the moment, whether there's some kind of pressure from people that you know, pressure from some kind of government, institution or workplace that is trying to stop you. Obviously, we're not in a position at the moment where we're experiencing real persecution and we praise God for that. But the point is, in all these pressures, there's one person behind them all. It's all him. He's the real enemy. The devil is the real enemy. He's he's the one that really wants to stop us speaking out. And it's really helpful to understand that. Because our battle is not against flesh and blood. The person who is trying to make you feel bad for speaking out, the person who's trying to make you feel awkward, the person who's trying to make you stay quiet is not the real enemy. The devil is. So when we see that kind of opposition in our lives, we might be tempted to withdraw, just like Daniel. We might be tempted to not speak out, to not go public. We might be tempted to go into a room and, and be a Christian in, in private, behind a closed door where no one can see us. And the question for us is the same as the question for Daniel. Will I keep stepping out? Will I keep speaking in a public way? Will I keep telling people who I really am? Um, maybe you're thinking, no way, that's not me. Maybe you're, you're sitting here thinking, and I'm talking about uh, speaking and, and being a, a public Christian, you're thinking, that's just not me. I'm, I'm not bold enough for that, I'm not brave enough for that. And that's where the second thing that we learn from Daniel 6 is really helpful. The second thing we, we, Daniel 6 helps us to see, not just who the real enemy is, but that he is powerless. It helps us to see the enemy is powerless. See, Daniel's courage came from faith. He came, it came from the knowledge that he had that God was more powerful. He just knew and believed that his God was more powerful than anything his enemies could throw at him. And in the end, he was proved right. Just look at how the story ends, with the enemies defeated and God being praised. If Daniel could see that, Daniel could see the real enemy was powerless before his God, how much more for us? As we look at our real enemy, the devil, the one who rules in the spiritual places in, uh, it, it, over this world, as we look back with the benefit of our position in time and see the victory that Jesus won over the devil on the cross, as we see his ultimate defeat and we see Jesus going to the cross for the purpose of defeating our enemy. There's a psalm in the, the Old Testament of the Bible, Psalm 22, that speaks really clearly in a really amazing way about Jesus on the cross and what he experienced. It starts with these words, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And David speaks those words, and Jesus speaks the very same words on the cross. And as we read that psalm, we can get an insight into what Jesus was experiencing. And there are verses in that psalm where David says, speaking prophetically, he says, The bulls of Bashan are encircling me, lions are surrounding me. Lions are surrounding me, seeking to devour me. They're roaring and they're, they're opposing me and threatening me. I'm, I'm hanging here and my bones are out of joint. I'm dripping away like wax. My tongue is on the roof of my mouth. And we see that and we read those words and we see Jesus. And we see that Jesus on the cross was experiencing the, the attacks of the enemy. He was experiencing the, the roaring lion. He was experiencing the, the fury 
of God's true enemy, the devil, poured out, unleashed on him on the cross. As he was hanging there, God's real enemy, the devil, was throwing at Jesus the worst he could muster, the absolute worst he could find. And Jesus walked into it, into his own, if you like, his own den of lions on the cross. And hanging there, he took it. And he took it all, and he took it all for us. All of hell's fury spent on Jesus, so there is now nothing left. And for those of us who follow him, for those who trust Jesus, there is nothing left for us. He hasn't got anything left for us. He can't touch us. He spends it all on Jesus. And then Jesus rises from the dead, and he stands victorious over the devil. And all who follow him are safe in him. He can't touch us. The Bible says, as Jesus died, he was disarming the devil. He, he disarmed the devil on the cross. He took away the devil's weapons. He's got nothing to throw at us now. And Jesus' story, the story of the Bible, ends just as Daniel 6 ends, with the enemies of God defeated and Jesus on the throne receiving the praise. That's how the story ends. And therefore, because we know that's true, because we know our enemy is powerless, we can step out. Because we know God's really in charge, we can go against the flow. We can be different in this world, in a hostile world. And so can you. When you're facing that pressure, when you're feeling that pressure, you can see the real enemy behind it, and you can remember that he's defeated. Remember that he's powerless. And you can do what Daniel did, and take a deep breath, and go for it, and speak out. And as you do, you're following in Jesus' footsteps. He's taken the hit for you, so the enemy can't do you any real harm. So there I am in the pub in London, and I'm having my, my beer, and the conversation's turned, and I'm trapped. I know I've got to say something, and I know it's going to put me in a really difficult position. I'm going to be ostracized by this group of people I don't even know who are quite intimidating. And I'm sitting there thinking, I need to do it, I need to do it. And I pluck up the courage and I say, well, funny you should say that. Actually, <laughs> I'm a Christian and I'm getting married. And the conversation goes on. And I'll, it, it was robust, I can tell you that. It was a robust conversation. They had some direct questions for me. But do you know what? I walked out of that pub in that uh, London city, whatever it was, Tuesday evening, heart pumping, full of adrenaline and full of joy full of joy. It was, just, it was a great opportunity. It wasn't easy by any means. But I had a great opportunity to tell them about Jesus and tell them about my faith in him and what it meant to me and the difference he'd made in my life. It's not easy to stand out for Jesus in the world, but it's such a joy. It's such a joy. Because we know the enemy's defeated already. He can't touch us. And because we know God's in charge, we can speak for him. Wouldn't it be amazing if we were a church community that we're all living and speaking for Jesus during the week in our workplaces in such a way that was attractive to people around us, in such a way that people just wanted to know more. And we don't have to be street preachers. We just have to be ourselves and love Jesus and be devoted to him and say, nothing's going to get between me and my God. Nothing's going to stop me from praying. And nothing's going to stop me from telling you that I love him if it comes up. We don't have to be weird about it, but we don't have to be scared either. 
Because the real enemy has been defeated. That means we can speak, and God's kingdom can and will grow. Let's, let's pray. Father, we thank you so much for Jesus. Thank you that he's won the victory for us. Thank you that he has defeated our true enemy, the devil. Father, I pray you would give us the boldness and the courage to speak for you, to live for you in the places you've called us to, in the situations that you want us to serve. Father, thank you so much that your kingdom is growing and nothing can stop it. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen.